Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, just over 60 years ago, a drug called thalidomide was withdrawn from the market throughout the world. The drug had been in use since the early 1950s to treat morning sickness in pregnant women. It was licensed in the UK in 1958, at which time it also became available here. By 1961, it had become apparent that one of the catastrophic side effects of the drug was that major fetal damage was done in the womb and the children who survived were born without limbs or with limbs foreshortened and other serious medical issues. This became a major scandal as the drug had been marketed very aggressively. In Ireland, no action was immediately taken when thalidomide was withdrawn in 1961 and it remained in circulation for another nine months. The Irish Thalidomide Association estimates that up to 51,000 packets of the drug were taken in that year alone. There are currently around 40 thalidomide survivors in Ireland and at least five mothers from those times who are still alive. The Irish Thalidomide Association is seeking a state apology for the manner in which the survivors and their families were regarded and the failure to protect them even after the drug was initially withdrawn. One of those survivors is Finola Cassidy. Finola, you're very welcome. Hello, Michael. Finola, I'm of an age where I remember encountering thalidomide survivors in college in the 1980s in particular. But there's a few generations who will not be aware of what exactly was involved. Now, just before coming to your own story, would you give us a bit of a background about the drug, its origins and how it became so popular? Absolutely. Well, thalidomide is the ingredient in the drug. Thalidomide is the damaging ingredient in the drug. And you have to remember in the late 50s, barbiturates and drugs became popular. They became the norm, you know, take an aspirin for this, take this for that. And it became part of a culture of that time. And the pharmaceutical firm in Germany called Grunenthal manufactured this new wonder drug, they labelled it as, because they said it helps with um, the nerves. If you can't sleep, a baby, it could be dipped into syrup and it could soothe the teething problems, etc. And they advertised it in particular for morning sickness to calm pregnant mothers. And they literally advertised it as safe as a sweet. And what happened back then in Germany in the 60s was the drug went through some trials. A lot of uh, propaganda material was definitely generated by the firm. But at no stage did they test it on pregnant animals, mice, rats, chickens, to check if there was any damage that could be caused to a unborn baby. Could this drug pass through the placenta barrier if a mother took it? And unfortunately, because of that omission, it wasn't picked up that it was causing or could cause particular damage. And the problem with the drug was that it was so toxic 
but for a very short period of time. So depending on which day of the pregnancy the mother took the drug, was gave it a, a direct correlation to the damage to the child in the womb. So, for example, my arms are particularly affected. My mother probably took it on day 22 or 23. If somebody took it at a different period, they might be born with no ears or a little hole in the side of their face. Another time period could lead to terrible internal damage, all sorts of malformations internally. And then you had a situation, depending on the days where people were born without arms, without legs, and the particular, I suppose, look of thalidomide, what they used to call in those days thalidomide syndrome, was um, almost flipper-like feet and hands, where little hands would come straight from the shoulders and the arms would be missing and the legs would be missing, but the feet would be attached to the torso. So you are talking catastrophic disabilities caused by this drug. And Finola, is there any estimate of how many mothers were affected by it? And also, is there any evidence that there was miscarriages as a result of taking it? Oh, absolutely. That's the, the saddest story as part of thalidomide. So they estimate that 100,000 children worldwide were injured by thalidomide. It is qualified, it's well written and uh, recorded that they believe 90,000 children died in utero or at birth. And then of the remaining 10,000 babies left, 5,000 died within the first year due to their catastrophic damage. And then you're left with about 5,000 worldwide, about 2,500 in Germany, about 400 plus in England, some in Japan, and obviously our small cohort here in Ireland. But obviously over the interim 60 years, we have sadly lost some very close friends, people we got to know as children, even internationally. And so the number is decreasing all the time. And you mentioned the physical aspects of it. And just in terms of impact, um, is there evidence, for example, that it shortened the lifespan and that there was health issues ongoing for people throughout their lives? Oh, absolutely. And especially because if you manage to survive the pregnancy in the first place, then manage to survive the birth and your early years, then, then you know, you, you carried on, but with huge uh, difficulties. So, yes, there is internal damage, intestinal damage, heart damage, hearing um, the mobility issues, obviously, because you you know you're adapting with no arms and no legs to a very challenging situation. But I suppose what is also highly documented now at this stage and just completely medically recognised is that because of all the disabilities, if you've survived till sixty, there has been a complete overuse and a complete misuse of the limbs. You've been using your body to do daily tasks to be part of normal life, to just try and do everything yourself independently. And that now has come at a huge cost to all the survivors. So a very large report was done by the Heidelberg University um, a few years back, and it's extremely detailed. But it at last, I suppose, shows that sometimes because sometimes we sort of we've been so capable in our disabilities, so able bodied being disabled because we found ways around doing things and how to do things. And we've led very normal lives in many cases. So this report recognised that the deterioration on the bones in particular 
was was huge. And we now have, uh, you know, we are the bodies of people 10 and 15, 20 years older than ourselves. So pain management is a huge issue, you know, because also one of the things that was huge with thalidomide was nerve ending damage. It did a particular action on the nerves within the body. So we all have an awful lot of pain dealing with the nerve ending damage. And that that's a fairly daily challenge, uh, to, to be honest. And just before I come to your own story, historically then, once, as we say, this is withdrawn from the market in 1961 on an evidential basis, and it obviously became apparent, presumably relatively quickly, that there had been a catastrophic error in this respect. What happened in relation to the survivors and their families early on in terms of that being recognised and there being some recompense in, in one form or another? Well, as you say, certainly when the children were being born here in Ireland and in Germany, nobody was joining the dots. Like a mother was being handed a catastrophically disabled child. Mothers across the world, especially in Germany, and um, perhaps even here, we certainly know it happened in the United Kingdom, where mothers were told, leave the hospital now and it'll be taken care of, or that the child, you know, was just too badly disabled to be handed to a mother. And there was all sorts of terribly sad stories um, about that. But the thing there was that um, the dots weren't joined. You know, you were handed a little disabled child and nobody in the room was thinking, oh, it's because on that date in that year, I took that drug. Nobody was connecting the dots. And then there were two doctors, uh, Professor Lenz in Germany and a Dr. McBride in Australia. They were gynecologists, they were uh, obstetricians, and they began to make a connection that they were handling the births of a very large number of of children with a similar disability. And the common denominator was always the taking of the thalidomide drug. And so they wrote to the Lancet and tried to get bells and whistles going, wrote to the companies, of course, uh, to the Gronenthal company. And each sort of report of a, of a disability at birth was nearly put in a different file and Grunenthal chose not to join the dots. But then these doctors persevered and when they got published in The Lancet and then other doctors saw this and it then, yes, at the very last minute when there was no choice, there was um, within a few days a withdrawal uh, at the end of November 1961. And that leads us particularly, I suppose, to the Irish saga. And for whatever reason, uh, there is a company in Ireland, uh, T.P. Wheelahans, who were the importers of the, the drug. Um, they, we believe, issued some sort of uh, notice, but we know this from Olivia O'Leary, who was a young journalist investigating the thalidomide tragedy in the 70s and even travelled to Germany and everything. And they discovered that really what had been circulated at the time was either like a pink or a green slip to pharmacies and chemists as if it was like a drug that was just out of date. There was no bells and whistles of big red writing, you know, to say stocks must be withdrawn in dangerous drug. There was absolutely no bells and whistles. And so this issue of almost an out of date notice, return your stocks, was in many cases somewhat ignored and certainly not completely acted on. For example, I have my own file where my mum, I was born in Cove, County Cork, and um, I was born in October 1961 um, and at the end of October, the 26th. But earlier in October, my mum went to the local pharmacy to fill a prescription 
and you have the normal things on it like Alka-Seltzer and talcum powder and whatever. And there's 25 Softenon tablets. And as I say, that's the trade name, one of the trade names for the the drugs that contain thalidomide. So even the month I was born, my mom had 25 more of them. You know, maybe she just bit stressed. I was youngest to six children. And she had them in her cupboard. If she decided that she was getting pregnant or had happened to get pregnant again, she would have probably reached for that drug. And the next baby could easily have been born with disability. Because in those early days, there was no connection. And even, as I say, when the Germans issued the withdrawal, um, it was not acted on here in Ireland. Now, Olivia O'Leary has has publicly said this and has stated it on primetime and everything. There appears to have been almost um, when they realised that the, a government sort of decision that we better not issue a bells and whistles withdrawal because we might frighten the women and God forbid they might miscarry or worse still, they might take a boat to England when they realise that the child could be catastrophically disabled and, and we don't want, want that. So we, we have never really got an answer as to why the withdrawal didn't happen in a timely manner. And indeed, actually, there was no proper recall here in Ireland because we know from Doyle reports and, and uh, people standing up in the Doyle, there was a particular Dr. John O'Connell and he was able to stand up in the Doyle and say that Doyle, that he was able to walk into a chemist shop down the country in 1963 and buy it over the counter. Do you know, it, it was... This is two years later. Absolutely, two years later. Today, you happen to be recording this interview on the birthday of my good friend and our wonderful chairman of the Irish Thalidomide Association, John Stack. And today, John is 59. And so he was born 14 months after the international withdrawal of the drug. It didn't need to happen to himself and to other survivors. It's, that's That's the terrible tragedy, the added tragedy to this story. Indeed, and it's funny you say that theory as to why perhaps they didn't withdraw it, Fanola, it would certainly be in keeping with other aspects of how we know the country was run, how women were regarded, how everything led back to the church in one form or another. It would certainly fit into that uh, template. Tell me yourself, at what stage did you become aware that um, any disability you had was down to this drug? And how was your childhood in general terms? I have to say I had a wonderful childhood. There, there are certain things I remember. Um, obviously, the arm was the arm. Uh, you know, kids would see it. I would deal with it. And there was little things, so many little things I couldn't do, like, um, you know, seamlessly covered by my brothers and sisters, my my siblings and mom and dad. You know, I, I turned around and somebody did my buttons. I put my foot out, somebody did my laces. You know, I was the youngest of six. I was the baby in the family. And um, I'd say I was probably a bit spoiled. But at the same time, full of the rough and tumble because I didn't know any different. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, I wasn't in any pain once we got past about the ages zero to six. When we lived in Cove, they decided that certain parts of my arms needed to have fairly major surgery, trying to centre bones and bones that were shortened and they amputated thumbs that didn't look cosmetically right and little things. And I have to say that was very, very difficult. I, I literally can still feel, the minute I think about it, I can feel the sensation of the steel of of, uh, of a medical instrument 
trying to cut open, you know, plaster Paris and just knowing that they were going to hurt me again. And I, I know when I look at my files, I was in the orthopaedic in Cork and uh, many, many times, I mean, 27 plus. And there, what's the hill in Cork? Because I know the way our car parked sideways on that big hill where the consultants used to have their offices and you'd be in and out to doctors there. Is it Patrick's Hill in Cork? Patrick's Hill, oh yeah. yeah and, and the olden yeah. days you had to drive up and you could park, you had to park sideways. You felt that the car was going to roll down the hill. It was so steep. And uh, so I, I remember fairly traumatic medical stuff going on. And then what happened was I was about 12 and unbeknownst to me, my father in particular and my, my mother, um, they realised what the connection was. It had become a little more out in the media there, there was talks and maybe he got to meet some other parents, etc. And so around my 12th birthday or, or what, sometime around the age 12, he called me into his bedroom and, you know, a family of six, you know, they're hard to find a private room in, in our house, I can tell you. But he sat me down on the bed and he explained to me that while I had said my whole life that my hand had shrank in the wash or that, the, you know, it had you know, the thumbs had, my fingers had fallen off or this. He then explained in, you know, as best he could to a 12-year-old that there was a cause and that it was this drug. And all I remember is the sensation of knowing that this was really serious. This was a game changer. That's, you know, that he even had to confide it in me. And it wasn't that they were withholding information. They just didn't think it added anything to my life to know from that earlier day. But once it was going to be public and actually a young Olivia O'Leary, who was very young at the time, was coming to interview Daddy um, for because he had started the Parents Association for Justice for the Little My Children. And so he was also and they were mum and dad were afraid that somebody in school would say, oh, they saw Daddy in the paper or something and that I'd get a wrong version. So they wanted to tell me the proper version and take it on board. But a bit like that feeling with that medical instrument that just brings a shiver to me instantly. I can still feel the back of the headboard on my back. I, I just remember it was a game changer. And, you know, that was it. It was told and you went about your business. And, you know, in those days, it's not like media savvy that you are now. I wouldn't have been particularly aware of media coverage that the parents were getting, etc. Um, but there is no doubt that they took on an enormous fight. And I know that because um, we have spoken at length with Olivia Leary and, um, you know, we know what went on and there's seven days programmes for back those days. And, and the parents were a small group of some of them, you know, this is so tragic for them to have to deal with it and to start a campaign. It, you know, it wasn't of that time, you know. And from your point of view, Finola, as you say, you're about 12 when when you heard what was really behind it. Did it impact you in any sense that, uh, particularly when you're growing up as a teenager, and that that any disability you had was down to human error, if you want to put it that way, in terms of the way the drug was marketed, etc. And was did that impact on you at all, or was it just a question that okay, you were told that was it, and you just got on with things? It was sort of a combination of both, because you know, in those days, if a child was born disabled back in the sixties and whatever, and probably for a few years after. People would say an act of God and sure, she, she'd be grand and everything. And for me, I was very, very lucky to be born into a family that didn't treat me any differently. There was no 
you know, it was just, I just got lucky. And that is not the case for many of the survivors. I mean, some survivors were sent away to institutions. Um, some survivors, you know, there's a story, I, especially in the UK, I suppose an awful lot of children were put into care. And we know here in Ireland, um, they're not members of our association, but we know people had to be put in care and for all sorts of reasons. But what I suppose, what I remember is it being a game changer. And then certainly as a teenager, that was a little bit difficult. Um, just the confidence to know. I remember going to my first disco or something and a not so very good friend. Um, I arrived thinking I was looking great and I was wearing short sleeves. And I was, you know, she said, you can't go like that. Nobody will dance with you with your arm. And I was like absolutely gutted. But whatever sort of ingredient was in the bad part of thalidomide, there's something about each and every one of us. There's a tenacity in our group, in our membership. And I think I learned at a very young age that if I stood there, everybody was going to stare at my arm, being even toddler. And so I think I went, da-da, before anybody got a chance to. And I think a lot of our survivors are quite outgoing and it, it's just something we seem to have done that we sort of said, well, look, we can't change this. So it's better I get it out there before you have to come to terms with how you're going to deal with me today. And I mean, you must remember, like we've some of our friends have no arms. You know, they're doing everything, driving cars with their feet. They're painting with their feet. They're people who have to lean in certain ways to do tasks. And, you know, sometimes people do find us challenging, but, you know, we are who we are. And the the success in terms of daily life, ordinary lives by this sort of extraordinary group, I I think it's amazing. I've I've never been so proud of a gang of friends in my whole life. It's 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 quite extraordinary. They're all really really wonderful and really special. It's it's amazing, and that's not uh, patronising. That is an acknowledgement that, like everybody else's lives, we have to deal with siblings, cancers partners, uh, the debts becoming, you know, life in general, getting a job, losing a job, all the normal things in life have been thrown at us, plus thalidomide. And here we are. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In terms of any culpability in relation to the state and in relation to drug manufacturers. There was an arrangement of sorts in this country around 1975. I don't know, were your parents involved in that on behalf of the families? Yes, Daddy in particular at that time. um, Well, Mummy too. Mummy addressed a a conference of ICA in in, in the RDS. We believe 2,000 women gave her a standing ovation when she made her speech on thalidomide. Um, But daddy and, and other parents, other parents, there was a committee and they tried their best because what was going on in Germany at the time was it became very obvious in the late 60s that Gronenthal had an accountability and they were responsible. 
But what happened in Germany was in the late 60s, a trial started against the Grunenthal Company. And it turned into the longest trial in German history, would you believe? And after two and a half years, without any attempt at a verdict uh, in 1970, it got pulled, it got stopped. Basically, the, the firm said, if this continues, we have to go into bankruptcy. You know, we can't do this. And so the German state uh, engaged at that stage because you must remember that the German economy was doing very well on its very profitable pharmaceutical industry. And so at that time, and with the threat of 5,000 jobs being lost at the at the pharmaceutical company, it, the trial was ended and a particular foundation in Germany was set up called the Contragen Foundation. Contragen is the German name for thalidomide. And so that became the case and the Irish state, you know, there's all sorts of letters on our files. I see daddy's files and it's over and back with German letters and the Department of Foreign Affairs or, you know, got involved and said, well, we, we'll try to translate these letters for you. So the whole saga was beyond traumatic to the Irish uh, parents, absolutely beyond traumatic. And they did the best they can. But then I suppose somehow the realisation of this non-withdrawal in a timely manner, I don't know if it was as big then almost as we now realise it is, but the state at the time eventually considered that they had a moral responsibility is the way they put it. And they they supported the German uh, settlement. And that turned out to be so ridiculously small, the Irish state gave a supplement to it. And um, I, I think, you know, basically you were talking, if you were looking at all the Irish money with the German money in those days, it was as little as £158, depending on your disability. And if you were absolutely catastrophically disabled, up to about £3,900. And then a small... Oh, that's pittance. Pittance. Now, and, but now you have to take into consideration it was the, the, the 70s, so there was a certain value to money. Yeah, yeah, within that context, yeah. Yeah, and, and also you, you have to remember that you had all um, levels of financial... Uh, status, I suppose, among thalidomide survivors, like what some person might say is very little money, another person might find it being the the lifesaver. And I, I've actually just recently reread the book about the campaign in Britain by a gentleman called Mason, who took 10 years to bring distillers to the table. And they had originally offered something like 3 million to the thalidomide children in the UK. But at the end of the 10 years, by the time, I mean, what a drama to go through for 10 years. And the Sunday Times involvement, I mean, you probably have heard of all that stuff. They ended up with yeah. a settlement of 33 million. And I'm here looking at all these files surrounding me because this is like head office for the Irish Thalidomide Association with all the stuff. And the files say in the, in the government records that I have, things like in, in uh, memorandums to minister and stuff to say, uh, it will be hard to argue the payout in Britain compared to the payout here. Like they they obviously knew that they were not exactly doing the right thing. But at the time, battle weary parents trying to deal with disabled teenagers at that stage, it, it was given as an ex gratia payment. And that's where one of the biggest tragedies, I suppose, and, and, and important points about the whole campaign for the Irish Thalidomide Association is 
that any award to a child in Ireland has to be ruled by the High Court. It's, it's you know, you have to protect the welfare of the child. That's in this, the Constitution. It's a state law, basically. And for some reason, those awards were never recorded and brought to the High Court for a ruling to decide if they were good enough and adequate enough for the children. And that's very telling because there is no way a High Court judge, as you just said, a pittance, would have ruled that for somebody with no arms and no legs, that little bit of money would have you know, done the trick or, or been satisfactory. Now, what you have to remember, and that's very telling too, and I've read it in memorandums myself, that the state and the whole world, I suppose, in regard to thalidomide children, we were the few who survived when I told you, as I said, so many didn't. But after that, we were more or less told, well, you mightn't live past your 20s. And middle age was certainly nothing that was being considered by any anybody on the scene, certainly not the, the state. And so from our story, we all went off, you know, late 20s. We, many went to college, many got jobs and people became homemakers, architects, like the, the achievements have been brilliant and that's there. So people just got on with their lives as best they can. And then, as I say, we hit our late 40s, came into our 50s, and it was this whole crop of unpredicted and unplanned deteriorations that just, it, it knocked us sideways. We weren't expecting it. And then rather innocently, we said, OK, well, the department, they pay us a certain amount every every month, between about 17 euro a day to if you've no arms and no legs, you get about 30 euro a day. And we said, that's not going to plan for middle age and old age. So we, that's when we all came together. Somebody had rung a Joe Duffy show and none of us had been in touch for years. And then some great people came together and it was lovely to see them. And we realized, okay, when you put us all back in a room together, you really see the damage, if you like. Whereas when we all hadn't really been hanging out with each other, hadn't seen each other in years, you forget that that's the, the collective tragedy, the collective damage. And um, so anyway, we all got together and we said, look, OK, we need to go back to the Department of Health. We need to get a meeting. We need to start to see what can be done, what improvements we could look for. And we were very innocent and naive in our in our approach, I can tell you, because we thought innocently that they hadn't heard from us in 35 years and that basically here we were coming out of the woodwork they would say, oh, OK, you lot, let's sit down and review this. And that was not the case. We we dealt with Mary Harney at the time, and then she sent it to the state claims agency uh, to make a report, a very, very flawed report. We, we'd need a whole programme on that. And um, she eventually uh, offered um, a take it or leave it settlement of €62,500 each. Now, whatever about the early compensation or, or payment, I won't even call it compensation, 62,500 when you're heading to 50 and 60 years of age and trying to plan for old age with catastrophic disabilities that are worsening was not a goer. Like the days uh, of old, some people took the money because they felt this was a needy time for them at their time, but most of us didn't. And since then, we've investigated further the state, by going to the state claims agency, brought in the lawyers. That meant we had to bring in the lawyers. And here we are 
years later, getting nowhere, 25 ministers for health have passed over the thalidomide tragedy, crossed their desk. And the, the current minister, um, Fanola, has made reference that, that there's legislation in train. What's the nature of that legislation? And what about the campaign uh, that the association is looking for an apology, very understandably? OK, well, just to address uh, Minister uh, Stephen Donnelly, because he is the custodian of the state stance at the moment, um, we accept completely that this did not happen on his watch. I'm not sure he was even born, obviously, at that time he wasn't. But he is the custodian of the state stance. And they have, m- many people have made representation on our behalf in, in the Oireachtas, TDs and senators alike. And the department issued the same spiel for nearly 10 years. I could write the script. I know every parliamentary answer that's going to come. And it says, we're working on the heads of a bill to bring the heads of a bill to, to the door. So here we go. They've never met any of us. Mary Harney, we didn't have those conversations even back in 2006. So they're planning to bring heads of a bill on something they know nothing about with no consultation with us. And that's bizarre. I mean, we're 40 people. Our needs are very specific. And, you know, a conversation to, about the heads of a bill is the, is the minimum that should have been done. But we're not looking to for heads of a bill. If in it, they're probably going to offer statutory health care. They, they go on all the time about all of us have a medical card. So a thalidomide who breaks a bone, and trust me, the bones break very easily. Instantly, they need hospitalisation and help. And they also need, say, physiotherapy. There's a two-year waiting list for physiotherapy. They need to be able to access these services privately and among specialists that they've got to know and people who've got to know their very specific bodies. You can't just walk randomly into a par- uh, you know, appointments and expect that person to understand the, the detail and difficulty of, of these completely malformed limbs, it's, it's, it's not to be expected. So the statutory healthcare package that they're mentioning quite often is very challenging for us because the, our health system, sadly, in Ireland is so flawed. That is only going to be ink on paper. There is no benefit to us in that that we can see. Regarding the meeting, um, we tried con- continually for the last you know, three of three health ministers. And uh, disappointingly with Stephen Donnelly, he was a huge follower and supporter of us in opposition because the they tried to bring in a statute of limitation amendment, one line sentence in the statute bill to say, yes, we've every right to be in court. And he stood up on the floor of the doll and he gave a absolutely great address with Jack Chambers. And then he became Minister for Health. We wrote, congratulation him. See us when you can. You have a lot to get to know. And yet, time and time again, letters gone, barely acknowledged, rarely answered. And now it's only because of the, the push that we've done in the last few months, triggered by the 60th anniversary of the withdrawal of the drug. We feel, our, our, our tiny group have sort of said, 60 years since the international withdrawal. And it's highlighted more than ever the seven month delay by the Irish state on the withdrawal back then. And we, we just have to push hard at this time. Like 
we have to get a meeting. Now we've been led to believe in a doll statement that he has said he will meet with us. Um, but he's also given a list as long as his arm about what can't be done and what can't be done at that meeting. But, you know, our attitude is meet with us. This saga didn't happen on his watch. And let's let's fix it. Let's let's try to, to sort it. You know, we're, we're exhausted. And at the moment, we're now eight years in the High Court and the state are spending 24 million having to disclose all the thalidomide documents to us in the High Court and that they would spend this size money fighting the children of the state. That's who we are. We were the children yeah. of the state. It's 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 bizarre. It is. Unfortunately, as, as I'm sure you know, Fanola, as they say in the saying, it's nothing personal because this is the way the state operates in so many different facets, both in terms of how opposition politicians change when they come into government and the amount of energy and expense and particularly the, the, the financial expense that is invested in fighting people looking for their rights rather than facing up to realise that the state has a responsibility here. And uh, as you say, we're not talking about thousands of people here. There's relatively very small number of people who have had to bear that burden throughout their life and, and, and it's something that came in when there was far too much deference in the state yeah. and now as you say people are at a particular stage of life where they need that kind of, of attention and responsibility. One of the uh, the, the hardest lines um, when you're saying how we got going with the campaign when we all first met and um, I sort of put up my hand and I said I'll do the typing because you know I joked them to say well I think I had more fingers in the room than anybody else. So I said, I'll do the typing. And that's how I became secretary and then spokesperson and whatever. But also because of the commitment to my parents, because they started this when I wasn't one of the worst affected by any manner of means, but they felt the injustice on it. And one of the lines that I came across in the memorandums to government, and it read something like, um, the cost to the exchequer diminishing as the children die. That's basically what it said. Gosh, so, yeah. you know, maybe at 60 years of age, that's what they're still hoping for. Well, if we leave this long enough, there won't be 40. We might be down to 30. But, do you know, the thing about, you know, us, I suppose, and, you know, we elect them all, right? And then, you know, the, the mother in me, the way I was reared, you know, you apologised when you did something wrong. You, around a family table, you try to, negotiate your way out of an old session when everybody was cross with everybody. You 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 had you applied almost good manners and a bit of sense to a situation. There is no certainly no good manners and there's very little sense being applied to our situation. And you know, like my families, your families, we're all taxpayers. Somebody is allowing them decide that that's a great use of money. Let's spend 24 million before you even count up lawyers' fees and legal costs on this rather than talk to 40 survivors. It's, it's I, I so also have no true. words. <laughs> no, Fanula, absolutely so very true. And um, hopefully you're going to get a result in the end. And uh, it's certainly something we all need to keep an eye on because, I mean, that's the, the way things work, unfortunately, here, unless pressure is applied, things don't get done and all that really works is applying political pressure. Finola Cassidy, thank you very much for joining us today and good luck with your campaign. 
Thank you so much. And that's it for today, folks. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening and we'll talk again next week. Go easy.